The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us continue where we left off this morning. So we are looking at the seven factors of awakening, which is the last of the seven ways of giving up defilements. Yeah, this is kind of the big uh, kind of fine finale of the, uh, the seven uh, coming to the end of the Buddhist path. Uh, and we have just been looking at the factors starting with uh, the awakening factor of mindfulness, then the awakening factor of investigation of qualities, the, investigation, <laughs> the awakening factor of energy, the awakening factor of uh, uh, joy, pity, rapture, the awakening factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of samadhi, stillness, and then the last one being the upeka, the uh, equanimity. Yeah. And uh, they are related to each other, one leading to the next one. So let's have a look at that very last line uh, that kind of uh, defines them a little bit, how they work, uh, where it says that uh, they rely on seclusion, uh, fading away, cessation, and ripen as letting go and just to be clear about what that means because this is actually significant for understanding how these things work yeah but the things that they rely on here obviously if they rely on that then we have to take that into account uh, when we practice these factors uh, so relying on seclusion uh, means that meditation practice happens in seclusion uh, that's really what it means ideally the more secluded you are uh, uh, the better it is if you are ready, but only if you are re ready, obviously. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't really work. Uh, and seclusion in Buddhism is all, always twofold. Uh, and the first one is like a physical seclusion, where you uh, go somewhere and you hang out in solitude. Uh, yeah, hang, um, just by yourself. Uh, that is the kind of primary seclusion. And you will see in the suttas that the Buddha always talks about this after you have established your mind well yeah it, this comes at the point in the path where you are about to enter samadhi this is where it arises uh, so seclusion here is always important to do these things at the right time if you do it at the wrong time it is likely not to work and not to give any results for you uh, so that's an important proviso and then, because of that seclusion of the body, then ideally, then you what arises is the citta viveka, the seclusion of the mind. Yeah, seclusion of the body, kaya viveka, seclusion of the mind, citta viveka. And the citta viveka is the seclusion from the hindrances in particular, uh, but also seclusion from the five senses ultimately. The mind kind of withdraws from that world. Uh, Almost like the mind maybe it like like dries out, yeah, of the sensual pleasures, because uh, it's sort of uh, this is a metaphor used in the suttas, uh, this idea of drying out from the sappiness of the sensual uh, pleasures or desires, uh, and uh, then that's where you have that citta viveka, secluded from the world, yeah, the deeper seclusion. Uh, So I guess that, that probably is the main seclusion, is actually the seclusion probably of uh, uh, sensual 
desires because you are secluded from the sensual objects that's the kaya viveka then you seclude yourself from the corresponding desires inside which is the chitta viveka probably the main meaning there yeah. so then you, you rely on that seclusion that becomes one of the uh, basic things that support your meditation practice and then it also relies on fading away yeah what does that mean there uh, and uh, this is what we will see later on when we come to the Anapanasati Sutta, that uh, your ability to go deep in meditation relies on things fading away. Uh, and it fades away from your mind, yeah, from your perception. Uh, gradually things decreasing, gradually things disappearing. Uh, yeah, your body fades away, your senses fade away, your thinking fades away, your will fades away. Everything fades away. Everything becomes more and more peaceful, less and less complex, more and more simple. Uh, and uh, until you're left with just stillness uh, and joy, usually. Eventually just stillness itself. Uh, things fading away in the world. Uh. And then once they fade away, they gradually fade away, eventually they cease yeah, completely. Uh. And uh, the depth of meditation depends on this gradual fading away, gradual cessation. Uh. And as things fade away and cease, it means you come to understand them. You understand what they are. You understand them as impermanent because precisely because they fade away and cease. You understand also the nature of suffering because you realize that cessation is great. Cessation is good fun. <laughs> and uh, you realize the non-self nature because uh, you can't access them anymore. You've gone beyond them. There's no access possible. Uh, they are literally out of control, and anything which is completely out of control uh, is, by its definition, non-self. It's one of the critical um, core definition of non-self, found in places like the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the uh, characteristics of non-self, um, which that Sutta is found in the Vinaya Pitaka, also found in the Kanda Sangyutta, twenty-second chapter in the Sangyutta Nikaya, Sutta number fifty-nine, I think. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so it relies on all of these things. Gradually, gradually going deeper and deeper. And uh, you can see there is a sequence here. Yeah, First of all, you are secluded. When you are secluded, then things fade away. After fading away for a while, they cease. And that insight that you get from cessation, uh, that leads to letting go. Letting go is the ending of craving. Uh, yeah? Pati nisagga is the Pali word. Uh, and it's kind of the let, final letting go. Where craving stops altogether. Uh, and uh, you find that final peace, the upeka or whatever on the path. Uh. So that is how these they work. Yeah, And of course that uh, pati nisagga, letting go, is equivalent to the insights yes at this point uh, you are becoming an aria noble one uh, eventually ending up being an arahant uh, and that is what that signifies there the insight uh, that arise automatically from the deep meditations uh, the path stops there all you have to do is to bliss out and you become enlightened as a consequence it's a good deal isn't it uh, yeah the path is all about blissing out enjoying yourself having a good time and the consequence of that blissing out is that you reach awakening. Gee, I couldn't be much better than that. This is like the optimal path, the supreme the way of living and uh, all of these things. Uh, it's just a positive message. Yeah, it's just this beautiful message. Uh, and it's so important that we bring that beautiful message out because uh, 
So often we talk about the negative side of Buddhism, and there is good reasons for that. Uh, but it's very important that we balance it out with uh, reminding ourselves that this thing is just so uh, marvelous and uh, astonishing what we're trying to do here. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that is the seven factors of awakening in brief. And um, then uh, the Buddha goes on and he says that uh, the distressing and feverish defilements that might arise in someone uh, who lives without developing these things do not arise when they are developed. These are called the defilements that should be given up by developing here. Yeah, so this is basically all dukkha. Everything is eliminated through this path. So any kind of distressing and feverish defilement is given up. Okay, then we come to the summary of the sutta, the last part. Now take a mendicant who by seeing has given up the defilements that should be given up by seeing. By restraint, they've given up the defilements that should be given up by restraint. By using, they've given up the defilements that should be given up by using. By enduring, they've given up the defilements that should be given up by enduring. By avoiding, they've given up the defilements that should be given up by avoiding. By dispelling, they've given up the defilements that should be given up by dispelling. By developing, they've given up the defilements that should be given up by developing. They're called a mendicant who lives having restrained all defilement, defilements, who has cut off craving, untied the fetters, and by rightly comprehending conceit, has made an end of suffering. So this is the whole Buddhist path. Yeah, In gradual stages, going from one, going to the most profound. And at the end there, this means that you have cut off craving. Yeah, This is what ripening as letting go means just before. You have cut off that craving here. You've untied the fetters or unshackled the fetters or whatever you want to call it. No more tied to the round of samsara. You have ended, equivalent to ending rebirth because you're no longer going around tied to this thing here. And by rightly comprehending conceit, the I am, yeah, rightly understanding the I am, uh, no more I am. Uh, and that means you've made an end of suffering here. Yeah. This is the profound insight into non-self. Uh, and you've taken that insight to its final conclusion here. Uh, whereby you never think of yourself in terms of I am anymore. Uh, you just see things coming and going, things arising and passing away. Uh, and that idea of I am is uh, has disappeared. Uh, this is what the Buddha said. Satisfied, satisfied, the mendicants were happy with what the Buddha said. So there you are. Uh, that is the last of the seven uh, things. And uh, we're going to look at this in much more detail because this is obviously very important. Uh, so much of the path is found here, especially when the foundations are very strong. So the, what is interesting here, of course, is that uh, so much, six of these ways of giving up are come first, they come even before meditation starts. Yeah, and That is what you see throughout the suttas. You see that in the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, the first six factors in the Noble Eightfold Path uh, are all about the about the preliminary work, the overcoming of the problems, establishing right view, 
seeing the world in the right way and then you're ready for your meditation practice. Uh, and it's exactly the same thing here. Yeah, The last of these ways of giving up uh, is really the one that has to do with meditation and everything else has to do with the preliminary practices. And yet, even though it, the last one is the one that has to do with meditation, it's obviously an important one because meditation is very significant on the Buddhist path. We're going to have a look at that meditation in quite a bit of detail. But before we do that, uh, I just want to have a look at a few more little suttas uh, that kind of establish some of the prerequisites and some of the things that we have been looking at. Uh, and uh, we are still working with, uh, still dealing with suttas from the Devata Sangyutta. You see that the SN1, the first collection, the first chapter of the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya. This is the 15th discourse sutta and it's called murmuring here. <laughs> murmuring is a nice word, isn't it? Uh, so um, this is how it goes, very short sutta. And uh, again, as you usually is the case, it is the first verse uh, is probably spoken by, or is said to be spoken by a devata, and then the Buddha replies in his way, yeah? and he's looking at things indifferently here. It doesn't actually say here that it is the Buddha, but presumably it is, although it could perhaps be any monk or nun or someone who is serious, a serious meditator. Yeah. When the noon hour sets in and the birds have settled down, the mighty forest itself murmurs. How frightful that appears to me. So that is kind of the worldly way of thinking. But the uh, more the noble way of thinking is when the noon hour sets in, and the birds have settled down, the mighty forest itself murmurs. Uh, how delightful uh, that appears to me. Yeah. <laughs> Almost the exact opposite. Uh, and uh, so this is the idea of uh, seclusion. Yeah, If you are ready for seclusion, one of the things that uh, are frightening about seclu seclusion is that you are by yourself in a wilderness. There is uh, animals around, there are noises at night. I don't know about you, but if you have been out in the forest at night by yourself, uh, your, uh, sometimes your imagination can play tricks on you. Yeah, You hear things that are not there, or they might be there, but you make them into something else. Uh, yeah, And that can be very problematic. Yeah. And I remember that story with Ajahn Brahm. He tells a story when he was in the, I think he was sitting in a cemetery uh, or something like that. Uh, and he kind of heard this noise coming. There was something coming. He was sitting by himself on this platform. It was getting dark, pitch black outside. He had no idea what was going on. He could see something something coming towards him from somewhere. It was a noise. Oh, yeah, it's only a small animal. It's not, no, nothing to worry about. And then time, little time goes by. And then the noise comes closer and closer and closer. Oh, it's probably not a small. Maybe it's a medium-sized animal. It may be a cat or something. Okay, no need to worry about that. And then eventually the noise just becomes incredibly loud. Yeah, it's really, really scary. And you think, it's, surely this is a tiger. This is a really big animal. So at this point, he's kind of worked himself up a little bit. I don't know if this is true, actually, whether this is really how he felt. But Ajahn Brahm is very good at telling stories. Uh, and he, he, always, he always says, never let the truth get away in of a good story, right? So this is, how, this is his philosophy of telling stories. <laughs> So they're not entirely reliable, but they're good stories. Uh, and then he's really worked himself up in fear, and he gets his torch out. He shines his torch, uh, and what does he see? T 
tiny mouse. <laughs> this is typical. This is how you know fears kind of play play with us, and uh, and this is what happens if the mind is defiled. This is uh, the Buddha himself talks about this in the um, what's it called the fourth sutta, the fear and dread sutta. What is the Pali? What is the Pali word again? Bhayavedava Sutta. That's right, Bhayavedava Sutta. Majjhimanikaya 4, the fourth sutta of the Majjhimanikaya. And the Buddha talks about himself, yeah? Even before his awakening, he too had that problem. He was kind of deep into the forest at night by himself. And then you heard kind of the the wind rustling in the leaves and kind of something walking around, yeah? And and even even he had that fear coming up at that time. It's kind of astonishing, yeah? And uh, usually it's because of uh, some kind of defilement. But if you have a mind that is utterly pure and you have a lot of metta, then usually you never feel fear in any kind of situation. Uh, and that is really the answer. And this is why the Buddha says you should not go into seclusion until your mind is really pure. Yeah, He talks about it. If you are ready for the jhanas or you had some jhanas already, that is the time to go into seclusion. Then you are ready. If you do it before that, you are maybe you will go nuts. <laughs> yeah, there, there are, Ajahn Brahm tells the stories of some of the monks he met in Thailand, and they will come out of the forest. They've been in the forest for many years. They had these large eyes, yeah, <laughs> and they did look a bit crazy. And when you talk to them, you realize actually they were really out of their mind. They've been too long in solitude without having that balance in their practice. So it is uh, that can be dodgy, huh? yeah. And um, so you have to be careful with these things. Uh. So, um, uh, yeah, so that is the uh, importance of solitude at the right time, why it seems so fearful. But once your mind is pure, once you are enjoying deep meditation, there's nothing more satisfying than solitude. Yeah, remember Ajahn Brahm on his six-month solitude? Nothing more satisfying. Why? Because that is so conducive to meditation to happiness that seclusion uh, super conducive if you're ready uh. so again this is opposite yeah the ordinary people see things as uh, fearful as dangerous whatever uh. the area see exactly the same thing as happiness and something positive uh. the forest is where you find that seclusion to practice the seven factors of awakening yeah the forest is is the ideal place that's why we have forest monasteries as i mentioned before and all of this uh. So, but even forest monasteries are kind of halfway houses. Ideally, you want to live in a little cutie by yourself in the forest. That's the best way. Eventually, a monastery is like uh, still you have a group of people around you. Depends how the monastery is set up. Sometimes your cuties are very secluded. It's good. But uh, the really secluded people, they live in one single cutie by themselves in the forest. Like some of the forest monks of Sri Lanka. Yeah, they are the famous ones. And they, you have one cutie and the nearest village is half an hour's walk away. That's the nearest person, yeah, half an hour away. And apart from that, all you have is, you know, dangerous spiders and wild animals and all of these kind of things. Yeah. And uh, so they, I guess they are good company. If there's no one else, they're pretty good company, right? You, you, yeah. uh, the famous cuties of uh, Venerable Nyanadipa in Sri Lanka, who's now passed away, a very famous forest monk. Uh, and he had these three-sided cuties. Uh, yeah, I probably told you about this before, but these are cuties that only have three walls. Uh, and the idea is 
it's supposed to be like a cave, yeah? And a cave always has an opening. So if your cutie is going to be like a cave, then you have to have take one wall off. So he only had three walls, these cuties. And what that means, because you're living in the jungle, it means all the wild animals, they come in at any time, yeah? So he apparently, he would, I, I, he would apparently wake up in the morning and there would be a snake sl sleeping next to him when he wake up in the morning. Yeah. How would you feel about that? Uh, would that be cool? What would you say? Would you say, good morning, Miss, Miss Snake? Or, or would you say, oh, please go away? <laughs> what would you say? But after a while, you become so in tune with nature that you do not not really so concerned about these things anymore. Uh, of course, they can be dangerous, uh, but you are in tune. You're not, uh, you become much wiser to the ways of nature. Uh. Anyway, so this is what happens. So uh, that is the murmuring sutta. Yeah, the forest, the beautiful forest, which is uh, sounds fearful, becomes delightful to someone seeking seclusion. Another forest sutta. Yeah, talking about forests. Uh, at Savati, standing to one side, that devata recited this verse in the presence of the Blessed One. Uh, those who dwell deep in the forest, uh, peaceful, leading the holy life or the spiritual life, uh, eating but a single meal a day, uh, why is their complexion so serene? Usually if someone is kind of leading a rough life, you would expect them to look a bit haggard and dodgy, uh, you know, they wouldn't be too happy. And uh, especially if you're deep in the forest, there's no joy there, and just have one meal a day, kind of really simple life. Uh, and uh, usually you wouldn't expect people to be happy, but actually, uh, yeah, it's the other way around. They are supremely happy. Uh. And uh, so then why is that? Well, obviously they are experiencing some deeper kind of happiness. Uh. And this is one of those great things in life, is to actually see people like that, who live very simply, uh, have very simple lives, uh, and to see that these people with simple lives, precisely, they are more happy than ordinary people. That's an eye-opener. Yeah, it shows you a different reality. It shows you something deeper with our life, something more satisfactory. That's what it shows you. So sometimes you just have to have your eyes open and be aware of what is going on. And then you will pick up on these things. Yeah, there's something really profound going on here. How is this possible? And then the Buddha gives you the answer how this is possible. They do not sorrow over the past, nor do they crave, hanker for the future. They maintain themselves with what is present. Hence, their complexion is so serene. Through hankering for the future, through sorrowing over the past, fools dry up and wither away like a green reed cut down. So it is by sorrowing of the past and thinking about the future uh, that is uh, how you wither away yeah? and, and kind of life is bad because of that. Uh, it's kind of interesting, yeah? Just thinking about the past, it just shows you that uh, being in the present is a far preferable mind state uh, than kind of dwelling on the past or thinking about the future. Uh, and you know that when people are sad or they are depressed, they tend to ruminate a lot or the mind just goes around and around in the same thought patterns, thinking about the past especially. Yeah, there's a often, uh, con it has, it is, um, 
connected to dukkha, the idea, you know, of thinking a lot about things. Yeah, it is this kind of mind just going on out of control. It never settles down. It's never peaceful. You can have an enjoy just relaxing yeah? or you're fantasizing about things. It shows a lack of happiness in the present. If you were really happy in the present, you would not be ruminating about these things. So you can see why this is problematic. Yeah. So all of this thinking about uh, back and forth, uh, yeah, this is actually a problem. And then the the fools they dry up and wither away. Yeah. It's a nice kind of uh, metaphor there. Yeah, dry up and wither away. I guess they just become old, and then eventually they die. Yeah, and for no real purpose. I guess that's the kind of the point here. You just die, and you haven't really built up the qualities of the mind. Uh. But the wise people they do not do that. Uh. They maintain themselves with the present, and that is why their complexion is so serene. They have a happiness that ordinary people don't have. Uh, you know, when the suttas here say fools, yeah, it's a high bar. Yeah, anyone who is not a noble one is a fool. Uh, so, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of people are fools, according to this. Yeah, it's a, it's a very very high bar. So, please don't feel bad if you are, uh, you know. <laughs> part of the fools here yeah it's okay to be part of the fools uh, the buddha sets this very high and you will recognize that that is very, very close to what you find in that beautiful sutta the um oh my mind is not entirely clear this is the uh, the padekarata sutta thank you so much Adanisana. that's why we have you here to help me help me out <laughs> Very handy. So, Baddekarata, the, the one auspicious night found also in the middle length sayings of the Buddha, Majjhimanikaya 131. A beautiful sutta, which really is just a verse, a single verse that tells you how you should live, yeah? how you should meditate. And it, it says something like that you know, you should not uh, uh, desire the future, you should not ruminate over the past. But you should look at the presently arisen qualities, uh, yeah, and stay with that, and and look look at those. Uh, that is what you should be doing here. Yeah? And then it goes on. You should be uh, unshakable and unmovable. In other words, it, this, now we're talking about samadhi, yeah, and then develop things from there. Yeah? The same idea, yeah, giving up the future and the past, and and coming into the present. Uh, this is what the uh, kind of mindfulness really is about. Uh, and beautifully, beautifully stated in that particular sutta. And then meditation takes off uh, and it uh, starts to work from that point of view here, uh, from that departure point. Uh. Okay. How do you avoid uh, hankering for the future? How do you not sorrow over the past? Uh, maybe it's worthwhile talking about that a little bit. Uh, um, the past is very often about, if you think, especially if you sorrow over the past uh, or you think about the past, very, sometimes it is about people, yeah, things that happened that were wrong, things that you didn't enjoy. So, we, so a lot of uh, this can be overcome by forgiveness, uh, yeah, letting go of the past. Uh, that is such an important point. Uh, and we talked about this already, how to do that, uh, how to kind of see people in a different way, uh, how to forgive them. Uh, so that actually helps you uh, significantly to overcome the past. Uh, and uh, the other thing that sometimes happens with the past is that we think back. We think at the, back to a golden time, yeah, when life was much better. I was young and strong, and we think that the past was really golden. But uh, uh, this is another 
delusion that the past was so much better for most of you the present is likely to be much better because you are all practicing buddhists uh, yeah you are trying to grow in wisdom uh, and that strength and that youthfulness you may have had had before is nothing compared to the wisdom that you have now this is what is truly valuable yeah so get things cleared out be clear about things uh, so many of the things that we may have had in the past that we don't have anymore actually weren't all that valuable uh, they were just worldly things uh, things that didn't really make that much difference in the long run uh, whereas the wisdom and the good spiritual qualities that you have built up that is what really matters uh, so get a perspective on these things uh, remember what is important and you don't you won't have this kind of Oh, the past, and you look through your photo albums and they go, Oh, we're so happy, so happy. Everyone is smiling on the picture. Yeah. <laughs> the delusion of pictures. Pictures, you know, you should never smile on the pictures. You look really grumpy on the pictures. <laughs> and then when you look into the past, you think, Yeah, the past was bad. Yeah. And, and then you, you only get the right idea. So we get it, we always get it wrong in the world. We kind of, we don't really understand what we're doing here. <laughs> And then is the hankering for the future. Yeah, the hankering for the future. Oh, the future, you know, you have all these dreams and delights about the future. And they too are always about the delights of the worldly things, success in worldly things, things that don't matter, things that are irrelevant. How often do you think about the future and you think, yay, I'm going to be really kind in the future, or I'm going to be sitting in meditation in the future. Is that what you think about the future? No. Maybe some of you do, but it's rare in the world, yeah? It's very rare. It, you don't fantasize about sitting completely still doing nothing. It's not the fantasy most people have, uh, because you don't need to fantasize about that. You can do it right here and now. So all of these fantasies are about things that are trivial, uh, things that don't matter, things that have no real purpose or point to them, just more of the same going around and around and around, uh, and we glorify them by being deluded about them. Uh, that is the real problem. So you see through all of these things that we have been looking at, uh, all of these, uh, looking at the sensual objects of the world, the, you know, all the other things, that, all, the, all the worldly dhammas, the loka dhammas, as they're called in the suttas, the praise and the blame, the fame and infamy, uh, and worldly possessions. And you just see through that as being empty, hollow, uh, without any substance at all. Uh, and then... The more you see that, and then also building up the happiness in the present at the same time by living well, then you come into the present, uh, and uh, then meditation becomes possible. Uh, so, uh, let's look at another sutta. This is called Crossing the Flood, and this is uh, also from the Devata Sangyutta. This is the very first sutta in the Devata Sangyutta, SN 1.1. And um, this is another one. I said before that there is another sutta which is like a little bit like a koan, one of these kind of seemingly contradictory things. And this is this particular sutta that I had in mind when I said that. Uh, and it's the very first one, so it kind of sets the stage in many ways for the rest of the Sangyutta Nikaya. So it's kind of interesting from that perspective as well. Uh, so crossing the flood, yeah. What is the flood? The flood is uh, uh, like the the river, yeah, of the the world kind of flowing on, and our job is to cross over that world to the other shore. Uh, it's a standard metaphor found in the suttas. This shore is uh, uh, our ordinary life, and the other shore is the kind of the uh, reach becoming an arahant or 
arriving at some more profound truth. And our job is to cross this flood, yeah, the flood of samsara. So how do we cross this flood? Hateful path, yeah, whatever. But uh, this kind of gives you a slightly different angle on this. Having approached the Devata, presumably, he paid homage to the Blessed One, stood to one side and said to him, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood? By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining, you crossed the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. So you cannot halt, nor can you exert yourself or strain, yeah? So what are you going to do? This is one of those things, yeah. Where you not, not neither do you supposed to really move, nor are you supposed to stop, and uh, it's one of those uh, conundrums uh, that is being set up here. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a famous saying uh, uh, that uh, Ajahn Chah is supposed to have said Ajahn Brahm's teacher, and he's supposed to say there comes a point when you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't go sideways, uh, nor can you stand still. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, if you can't, there's nowhere to go and you can't stand still, what are you going to do? And the answer is, you let go. Yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. So, um, uh, which is a kind of going forward, I suppose. And this here is similar to that idea. Yeah, similar to this idea. You don't halt because halting means that you've kind of given up on the path. Yeah, you don't move forward on the path anymore. You cannot halt. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, straining, straining here means really eg- like exerting willpower. Yeah, You are using willpower to move forward. Uh, but that too doesn't really work. Yeah? We saw before that you know, life uh, is sometimes uh, compared to like this mountain river uh, sweeping everything away in its path. Uh, yeah? And life is like that. It's a mountain river going madly forward, this kind of... A high degree of energy and exertion coming from willpower, craving, driving us on in the world, restless and agitated. Uh, and that is kind of the striving. Yeah, This is the problem with striving. It doesn't get you anywhere. It just keeps you going round and round, not really reaching any useful point. Uh, so that doesn't work, uh, nor does uh, the whole thing work. So what is it that works? Uh, and what works, of course, is the uh, using right view, uh, yeah, using wisdom, uh, understanding where to go without really using willpower, uh, but using the wisdom power instead, uh, uh, reading the suttas, getting the right view, and allowing, almost like you're allowing the process to unfold. Uh, the more you can live with morality, with kindness, without exerting yourself, because it comes naturally, uh, the better it is, uh, the more easy is the path. Uh, and eventually, when you carry on doing that and now we're coming to the meditation part you really have to learn to allow things to happen naturally because they cannot really happen through willpower it's one of those beautiful statements in the sutta we'll have a look at later on you cannot progress through willpower through these stages of meditation they happen as a matter of course as a matter of nature they are dhammata yeah according to nature 
So this is the thing, yeah, you neither strive nor do you halt. There's a strange middle way somewhere in, in between uh, where the right view just drives you on yeah, in the right way because you have wisdom and use that wisdom to the best of your ability. That is the way forward. Uh. So uh, that doesn't mean you should never ever use any willpower in your life. Sometimes you may have to use a little bit, but it's a, a general truth about how the path works, especially the later stages of the path. Uh, they work like this. So I don't know what you think, but uh, I think it's really nice and really marvelous the way this is uh, expressed. So now let us come to the uh, final couple of suttas. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on these suttas because they are really very meaningful and very useful on the path. They have a lot of information about how to practice. And this is the famous uh, Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing, uh, found in the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, the Majjhimanikaya, number 118. And these instructions for mindfulness of breathing are found many places in the suttas. Uh, and if you look at the other uh, uh, recensions, like in Chinese or whatever, you find them almost exactly the same in the various schools and the various places. So this is a very core part of the Buddhist teachings. And as I mentioned before, if you look at this sutta, and I think we will actually see this. Let's see if I, I think I have included that here. Um, Maybe not. Oh yeah, yes, it is there. So, so, and mindfulness of breathing fulfills satipatthana practice. Yeah, this is all you have to do to practice satipatthana, which is the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So, this is really all you have to do. This is uh, the meditation, primary meditation in Buddhism, in early Buddhism, mindfulness of breathing. Here, so. Let's have a look at this. So I have heard at one time the Buddha was staying near Savati in the eastern monastery Pubbarama, the stilt longhouse of Migara's mother, together with several well-known senior disciples, such as the Venerable Sariputta, Mahamogallana, Mahakassapa, Mahakachana, Mahakotita. Mahakappina, Mahachunda, Anuruddha, Revata, and Ananda, and others. This is like the, you know, the yeah, who is who of the uh, suttas almost. This is really kind of the, all the big shots. Some the, the nuns are, <laughs> the nuns are missing a little bit, but uh, this is usually how it would uh, how it works. So um, here you have the Eastern Monastery, yeah, the stilt longhouse of Migara's mother. Migara's mother is Visaka, uh, who is often said to be the Buddha's chief uh, female lay disciple. Uh, um, yeah, and she gave this monastery to the Sangha. She obviously came from a very wealthy family, and she is said to be Migara's mother. I don't know if you know the backstory to that. It's a very beautiful backstory. Migara is actually her father, her, her uh, father-in-law. Uh, uh yeah and um so uh and so and he was this this is really wealthy man uh, according to this uh, but he didn't have any faith or confidence in anything yeah he just wanted to spend his money and and whatever and then visaka she was able to turn him around uh, yeah to get him to become a, a buddhist basically and have a spiritual life uh, 
And uh, I think one of the ways she did that, she was uh, telling him that when he was using his money, he was telling you're just uh, eating eating old porridge or something like that, or or enjoying old things. Uh, and he got upset because he was wealthy. He was, you know, he had he was he wasn't just eating old stuff. He was enjoying what he was his life. Uh, and he said, "What do you mean? You're just I'm eating just old porridge." Uh, and she said, "Well, you're just using of your existing wealth, uh, using what you have, the kamma you made in the past. Uh, you're using that up without making anything new for the future. Uh, yeah, you're just eating old stuff, uh, but actually not creating anything new." Uh, and I think, if I remember correctly, that's what kind of made him come around and realize something wasn't quite right with the way he was living. He wasn't building anything up for the future, anything positive. Yeah, this is Visaka. Sometimes you have to be a bit crafty yeah, to <laughs> get people to come. It's not really craftiness because it's just a kind of wisdom used in the, for the benefit of everyone. That's, of course, what it really is about. So she gave this... A house, yeah, often called Megara's mansion, but you will notice here is called the, the stilt longhouse. Yeah, Pasada. What is the difference between stilt longhouse and mansion? Well, you, normally you wouldn't give a mansion to the Sangha. Yeah, here, venerable venerables, here is a mansion for you to live in. Uh, doesn't sound right, yeah. And uh, the word Pasada actually means uh, stilt house in the Pali Suttas. And, this is uh, sometimes you, you you find these things out by looking at the text carefully. Huh? So this is actually a correct translation. This is Adan Sudato's translation here. So it's a stilt house. Yeah, stilt houses sometimes come in all kinds of shapes. They can be very large. They can be all kinds of shapes. But uh, here it is just a house for the sangha to use. And then you have all these super duper well known disciples. Yeah. yeah? Venerable Sariputta, the right-hand disciple, Venerable Mahamogalana, the left-hand disciple, Mahakasapa, who presided over the first council after the uh, Buddha's passing away, Mahakachana, who was the master of expounding in, in, in detail what the Buddha had expounded in uh, brief, and Mahakotita, who was like the analyt- master of analytical things, uh, Mahakapina, who was the master of something, I'm not sure what. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ma- <laughs> Mahachunda, he was the uh, brother of uh, Venerable Sariputta. And Ruddha, of course, the master of uh, uh, seeing uh, uh, of the divine eye uh, and also a cousin of the Buddha. Uh, Revata, he was, the, I think, Revata, the doubter. He had a lot of doubt, but he overcame his doubt. And, of course, Ananda, the, uh, the number one Upatakya of uh, the Buddha. So these are lots of great disciples. And if you want to find out more about the great disciples of the Buddha, there is a book called The Great Disciples of the Buddha, uh, which is available, and you can read about some of those um, masters in that book. And it's a, quite a well-known, well-written book yeah, that was done by a German uh, man called Helmut Hecker, who has a who had a very good knowledge of the, the suttas, etc. Anyway, so all of these are all of these great monks are hanging out together, and uh, so you can imagine that uh, that is kind of to set the scene, yeah, and uh, gives you an idea that what comes now is very important. Why would the Buddha teach these monks uh, things unless it was really really important? Uh, yeah, so this sets the scene. There's actually a long section in between there where he talks about how they what they do together. Some are practicing this, some are practicing that, uh, but I left that out because it's not so useful. Uh, I kind of get down to the to the facts here, uh, the important things. Uh. So, let us see what the Buddha has to say here. 
mendicants when mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati, is developed and cultivated, it is very fruitful and beneficial. Mindfulness of breathing, when cultivated and developed, fulfills the four kinds of mindfulness meditation. The four kinds of mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven awakening factors. And the seven awakening factors, when developed and cultivated, fulfill knowledge and freedom. This is setting the stage even more. Yeah, Why this meditation should be done. Uh, it is very fruitful and beneficial. That is, that's, that's no understatement. It's kind of just uh, uh, very precise because this takes you to the very end of the Buddhist path. It's kind of fascinating. All you have to do is watch your humble breath and that humble breath takes you all the way to the end of the path. Uh, and Buddhism is very kind of, uh, in that sense, very natural. Uh, you don't have to do anything kind of magical or anything like that. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, watch your breath and bang, you're an arahant. Uh, Something like that, yeah, it's, uh, with a little bit in between, of course, but uh, that's roughly what happens. Uh, so you watch your breath, uh, and it fulfills the four kinds of mindfulness meditation. The four satipatthanas are fulfilled by this. Uh, it is all you have to do. Yeah, you don't need to add any complexities to it. You don't need to watch the feelings in the body. You don't have to do uh, noting all kind of stuff. Or I shouldn't maybe say that sort of thing, but you know you don't have to do all of these complexities uh, that are often talked about when it comes to Satipatthana. Keep it really simple. Uh, and I would really advise you to keep things simple because uh, it is difficult enough to find your way through the jungle of the mind and to understand what is going on. It's complex enough already. We need simple instructions to be able to do this. Uh, be kind, watch your breath. Yeah, This is difficult enough to do. Most people can't do that. Uh, yeah, But if you at least, it's, it is it is possible at least to remember that. Yeah, It's kind of within the realm of possibilities, but some of the other things are not really within the realm of possibility. There's at least a chance we might be able to do that, even though actually even that is actually quite uh, demanding because we can't remember it, we do it at the wrong time, in the wrong sequence and all of that. Uh, so simple, be kind, watch the breath. Be kind, watch the breath. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of that teaching that um, Ajahn Ganha, uh, gave yeah when he went to uh, 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 went to when the, this group of people went to Thailand and they all went to Thailand from Perth and they asked him oh well you know can you please explain mindfulness of breathing to us oh yeah uh, breathe in sabai breathe out sabai yeah breathe in sabai means breathe in relax breathe out relax evang uh, that's it uh, and that was all that he taught yeah and he they travel all the way from Perth to Thailand to get this teaching that's all he said. But it's very profound. Yeah, this is the thing. This is very uh, beautiful because basically the idea is to be able to be sabai, to be able to really be at ease and relax, you have to be kind. You have to do all the right things. If you can really can relax, you really can be at ease, that is really all the teaching you need uh, if you are ready for it. Uh, but then you have to understand how to be sabai. That's kind of the hard part, how to relax. Uh, that's all you need. Then the four kinds of mindfulness meditation, you watch the breath. When developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven awakening factors. Uh, yeah, the As you watch the breath, all of those qualities we talked about before, they arise through breath meditation if and only if 
That's one of those mathematical things, uh, if and only if. <laughs> if and only if you have prepared the ground, you have done the right things, your sila is purified. If your sila is purified, then all of these things will happen. All the joy, the happiness, the tranquility will emerge simply from watching the breath. Yeah, the humble breath. And then carry on with the seven awakening factors ending in the four jhanas. And the result of that is uh, to fulfill knowledge and liberation. Knowledge is insight. Yeah, vimutti jnana dasana. Knowledge is insight, and it is the insight into non-self, dukkha, etc. Yeah, you see the world clearly, you see the emptiness inside and all of that. That is the knowledge, and with that knowledge comes the liberation. A liberation from the defilements, yeah? liberation from samsara, liberation from dukkha, the ending of the round of existence. These two things are two sides of the same coin. You know and you are liberated, which is great, yeah? which is exactly how it should be. It should be based on knowledge, it should be based on seeing things clearly and reality. Because then there's a certainty there. There is a feeling of not, it's not as if you are tricked into anything. Not, not as if you are told something, okay, now you're liberated. Oh, really? Okay, thanks. Uh, no, you know you are liberated, yeah? Because you are, these things are two sides of the same coin, which is exactly how it should be. Yeah? Seeing things according to reality uh, should always be a positive thing, yeah? eventually leading to liberation. Yeah? Of course, knowledge and liberation may not sound all that marvelous except that it is the highest happiness attainable by anyone so it is pretty pretty good huh? so um, let's just uh, maybe very gently uh, get started with the sutta and uh, the actual mindfulness of breathing how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated to be very fruitful and beneficial it's when a mendicant has gone to the wilderness, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut. They sit down cross-legged with their body straight and establish mindfulness right there. Just mindful, they breathe in. Mindful, they breathe out. Yeah, simple. So, first of all, you go to the wilderness, yeah, to the root or the foot of a tree or to an empty hut. And this shows you again that meditation happens in solitude. This is what this shows you. And uh, you see similar teachings throughout the suttas when it comes to meditation. Yeah, And this happens almost always very close to the attainment of the jhanas and samadhi. If you look at the gradual training, this is like the almost the last step before you attain the jhanas. You go to the wilderness, abandon the hindrances, and enter jhana. And abandoning the hindrances is what happens through uh, mindfulness of breathing here. Remember, the vast majority of defilements have already been abandoned. There's a tiny bit of defilements left in the mind, and that is what is abandoned through the meditation practice. So you go to solitude. Yeah, We have seen already how this is viveka, nisita. You rely on viveka, you rely on seclusion. Yeah, we, we rely on viveka. We don't, not, not anyone called viveka, but on, you know, on, the, <laughs> on the seclusion here. We rely on that. And then uh, that becomes then the, uh, 
support for that meditation practice to happen. Yes, now we can see how it fits in with the seven factors of awakening. The more you understand the suttas, everything fits together like this. It is this uh, uh, puzzle, the picture of the Dhamma is just so, uh, you know, it all fits together very, very beautifully. And the more you read the suttas, the more you can see everything fitting together like that. Uh, and uh, the feeling you get is that there's one mind who made this because only one mind would be able to keep everything kind of fitting together so beautifully. Yeah. If something was done by committee, yeah, yeah, lots of people doing it, it would not have be so seamless and such a beautiful overall picture yeah, as it is. So you go to an empty hut yeah, and uh, you, you do these things and then you sit down cross-legged yeah the palankang abujitva i think the pali is uh, so this is why we sit cross-legged if you ever wondered why this is this is why because it says in the suttas uh, yeah it's usually as simple as that almost everything we do is taken out of the suttas uh, so this is why we sit down cross-legged and this is why some people are going to say to you if you don't sit cross-legged there's no way you can become enlightened yeah, yeah. <laughs> It comes from these kind of passages. Yeah, you take it a little bit too seriously, perhaps, and you forget that there is a broader picture behind this. Sitting down cross-legged is the posture that was used in ancient India, and that's why it is used here. It is kind of the standard meditation posture, and when you get into it, you can see why. It's actually very comfortable, very stable. Yeah, it's it's relaxing. If your body is used to it, it's quite relaxing. You can sit there maybe for. An hour or two, you know, actually, yeah, but sometimes in the second hour you start to get some few pains. It all depends on how used you are to it. But you can see why it is a good posture. But it is important to remember the background to this. The background to this is the middle way. Yeah, so remember always the background. And when you remember the background, you can use the posture wisely. There are many people who get into good meditation in all kinds of posture. Yeah. Walking meditation, you know, again, uh, Ajahn Brahm getting into really profound meditation, doing walking meditation, is possible. But uh, you know, you try to stop it before you walk into a tree or something like that. Uh, but uh, it's possible, and uh, you can do it. Some people do it standing. I don't know, but can, maybe that can be done as well. You can do it by sitting on a chair or sitting on the ground or leaning against the wall or sitting on a stool or whatever it is that is. Uh, convenient for you. There is no one posture that is required to get into good meditation. You can do it lying down. Some people tell me they have a hard time meditating lying down. Okay, that's fair enough, so don't do it lying down if you have that problem. But sometimes it may just also be a matter of perception, that you haven't developed your perception in the right way when you lie down. Some people lying down, they get, go straight into samadhi. Bang. Yeah. yeah. So it is certainly possible to lie down as well, as long as you your mind is in the right place and the right spot. Uh, so don't be don't become too fundamentalist about you know having crossed your legs. It is not meant quite in that way, uh, I think anyway. So you cross your legs if you are comfortable and at ease with that. Uh, then uh, you the, uh, put your body upright, ujjukayang uh, panidaya, something like that. Uh, you put your body straight. Yeah, Ujju, the word Ujju in Pali is related to the English word right or straight. It's actually the same word, the same root. It's just it sounds a bit different. In Sanskrit, Ujju is Rujju. 
and I, you can start to see the connection a bit better here. Rudra, right, straight. So, and of course, the idea here is that you are you have you want to have clarity of mind, so you kind of put your body straight. But again, it's about doing it at the right time. If you try to straighten up your body too much, if your mind is all over the place, it might sometimes be counterproductive. Sometimes you really need to relax and let go before you kind of take a, a, a posture which is a bit more strict yeah, or a bit more uh, stiff or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so you really relax first of all. You sit against the wall. Yeah, you relax. Uh, you uh, Whatever it is that you do, you sit down in an armchair for a while just to let go, especially if you come back home after a long day at work or whatever it is. Uh, and then after a while, you know, then you kind of... You, mindfulness returns then you straighten your body and it happens almost automatically because it feels nice to be straight if your mind is clear yeah so again come to these instructions in the right way remember before you come to mindfulness of breathing you have already practiced the first six factors of the noble eightfold path yeah and that includes clarifying your mind you already have mindfulness at this point so if you haven't got mindfulness, it means these instructions are not really for you. They're only for you if you have a degree of mindfulness already. Yeah. So this is a, so you have to again get these things in the right way, interpret them in the right way, not to overread too much into them, which actually isn't there. Then uh, you establish mindfulness right there. I think right there is his translation of parimukkang. Parimukkang is one of those words that is kind of debated what it means, but it means something like in front of you or right there, yeah, in the present moment, in the present space, something like that. Uh, so you establish mindfulness. Uh, this is a prerequisite for doing meditation, yeah. Again, this shows you why all the first six factors of the path are so important. Uh, one of the things that you find in the Satipatthana Sangyutta, again in a number of places, two things that are required, prerequisites for Satipatthana practice. One is Sila, the other one is Ujrakaditi, the straight view and virtue, which of course are exactly the first six factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. View and virtue, view and morality, yeah, these are the foundations for the Noble Eightfold Path. So, you have that foundation and then you have the restfulness of the mind that enables mindfulness to be there. You're not too exhausted, not too tired. You give yourself a bit of time to clear, allow the mind to clear out. If those things are in place, then all you have to do is wait and the path will just look after itself. Yeah? But you have to make sure that you do establish that mindfulness first of all. One of the very important things here is the idea of right view. Why does right view matter so much? And the reason why, there's a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because right view gives you the right values. Yeah, if you view, if you understand that the world isn't very interesting, if you understand that the world is always going to let you down, always going to be problematic, always going to lead to dukkha, if you get that in a deep way, you're not going to value the world. And if you don't value the world, your mind is not going to go there. You will be able to be mindful. But if you value the world, then your mind will always tend to go to those things. You will think about the future, you will ruminate over the past, you will fantasize about things. Why? Because you think it's worthwhile. 
or you will resolve your problems and like, yeah, I can solve my problems. My mind is getting a bit more sharp. But the problem is if you understand that there's always another problem behind the one you're solving now, there's always more of it, there's no end to those problems. Then of course, even solving the problem becomes less interesting because all you're doing is you're giving rise to the next problem behind it. And of course, that is really unsatisfactory. So right view is this beautiful way where that allows you to come into the present because you value the right thing here. You value the spiritual path. And then when you value it, then you prioritize it in your mind. And if you prioritize it in your mind, that is where your mind goes. And it goes there by itself, without force, without anything at all. That's the power of right view because you understand there's nothing you have to do about it. And this is why... When I hear how Ajahn Brahm meditates, I start to understand what it is that he does. Yeah, He says, you just sit there, you don't do anything, and you just wait. And then everything happens from that. And for most of us, it sounds like magic. But if you understand the power of right view, then it is very obvious why it happens. His mind goes to what is truly valuable automatically because he knows what's going on this is the idea of right view being there. And then with that right view, you also bring the morality, the, um, you know, all the goodness of your heart or whatever it is, you bring that into the, uh, with you. And of course, that is what makes you want to be in the present. Because if you are really have a good heart, then the present moment is going to be happy. It's going to be a good place to stay. You're going to want to be here. So these two things together give you a powerful foundation for mindfulness. Yeah, This is how mindfulness really becomes established. And apart from that, all you really have to do is wait. Yeah, Wait, wait, wait. Allow things to die down. Allow the world to fade away. Of course, it's going to take time sometimes. Sometimes we are so caught up in things. You have to give yourself time for things to fade away. But eventually it comes together and then you are on the right track. You have established mindfulness. And guess what? Now you are ready for watching the breath. Yeah, you're ready to do this meditation. These are the prerequisites. And I would say that these prerequisites are probably the most important instructions for mindfulness or breathing. Everything else is pretty much automatic, but that is the foundation you need. No matter, no matter how much force you do, no matter how much you sit for long periods of time, if the foundation isn't there, it's not going to work and you are probably just wasting your time. So this is where you need to look if you want to find out how to improve your meditation practice. Okay, everyone, that's it for now. So keep on <laughs> enjoying yourself and uh, We'll see you back again this evening. Maybe today we will do a bit of guided meditation because someone asked about that yesterday. Uh, so maybe I'll probably come in here maybe around six or something and do half an hour guided meditation before we do the uh, Q&A here. So let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.